All right, folks, welcome back. This is episode 19 of the Not Funny Guys present Why? Exploring the philosophy, rhetoric, and cultural impact of the MCU. I am your host, Dr. John. This week, I am joined once again by my wonderful and amazing friend, Marsha Greenway. Welcome. Thank you. It's so great to be back. I appreciate it. Awesome. Now, reminder, everybody, this pod is an extension of our main podcast, The Not Funny Guys Present Off the Reels, where we explore the films. And here we will explore some of the ideas and have a little debate and thought process and thought exercise about things that we saw and things that surround the issues. And we start by asking the question, why? And so for this episode, we're going to be talking about Spider-Man Far From Home and Spider-Man No Way Home. And so interestingly enough, in these two films, we are introduced to the almost the full gambit of every major arch nemesis of Spider-Man between the two of them. And of course, in Far From Home, we meet Mysterio and who in the comic books, his real name is Quentin Beck. He was created by Stan Lee and Steve Ditko. Remember those two names because I'm going to be repeating them a lot. He first appeared in Amazing Spider-Man number 13 in 1964. He's also apparently... I did not realize this, a villain to Daredevil as well in the comic books as well as Spider-Man. He, of course, has no powers, but is a former special effects artist, illusionist, and actor who turned his talents to crime. He is a founding member of the Sinister Six, a group that failed to launch in the Sony Amazing Spider-Man 2 that I will never watch again. His skills are as a master <laughs> illusionist with a suit embedded with advanced tech and gadgetry, and he is also apparently skilled in hand-to-hand combat. Uh, now, that's from Far From Home. In No Way Home, we finally get to meet, well, we meet him at the end of Far From Home, but we finally meet the eponymous John Jonah Jameson, or who we like to call him J. Jonah Jameson, publisher of the Daily Bugle newspaper in the comic books, and nemesis slash frenemy to Spider-Man, and sometime employment uh, employer of his um, mm-hmm. alter ego, Peter Parker. First appeared in Amazing Spider-Man number one in 1963 and created by, you guessed it, Stan Lee and Steve Ditko. He is, of course, played in the movies by the brilliant J.K. Simmons across all multiverses, I'm assuming. He pretty much must be a Nexus being and is always an excellent foil to Spider-Man in a little less harmless manner normally. Now, we also have Dr. Octopus, a real name Dr. Otto Gunther Octavius also created by Stanley and Steve Ditko in an appearing Amazing Spider-Man number three in 1963. Considered one of those mad scientist types that is sometimes generic to comic books, he invented, of course, robotic arms slash tentacles, which helped give him, of course, the name Dr. Octopus slash Doc Ock. Uh, those tentacles were permanently fused to his body after a lab accident. This, of course, led him to a life of crime. What else is he going to do? Because there were no good options like uh, for freaks like him. Just kidding. Considered one of the three primary arch enemies of Spider-Man, the others being, of course, Green Goblin and Venom. And he also was a founding member of the uh, and apparently leader of the Sinister Six. Of course, we also have Green Goblin, who we have seen before. The same with Dr. Octopus. We are seeing characters now who are returning to us from the Sony-verse. Uh, these first ones here come from us from the Tobey Maguire uh, Spider-Man timeline. Of course, Got- Green Goblin, Norman Osborn, is again one of the main arch of Spider-Man. He was created by Stan Lee and Steve Ditko in 1964 and first appeared in Amazing Spider-Man number 14. 
He was a manifestation of a chemically induced insanity that overtook Norman and would go on to be a persona used by his son, Harry, and adapted by other villains such as Hobgoblins and others. Comics journalist and historian Mike Conroy writes that the character, quote, of all the costume villains who plague Spider-Man over the years, the mo- he is the most flat out unhinged and terrifying of them all. And his co-creator, Steve Ditko, recounted that Stan's synopsis of the character that was sent to him um, basically had the idea that the Green Goblin would be some sort of Egyptian found in a sarcophagus creature, almost like a mythological demon. Um, He naturally, um, who somehow comes to life, and uh, Steve decided to change it to a human villain instead. So... Thanks. Thanks, Steve. Good call. Yeah, I think so, too. <laughs> Otherwise, we would we would have been moving into Moon Knight territory there. That's what I was uh, thinking, too, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Jump in the gun. All right, so Sandman, real name Flint Marco, who first appeared in Amazing Spider-Man number four in 1963, created by our usual suspects at this point, Stan Lee and Steve Ditko. He is a, sh- he is a shapeshifter due to an accident where he was reduced to Sand. Started as an adversary of Spider-Man, was a member of the Sinister Six and the Frightful Four. Love those alliteration names. Uh, He also faced off against the Fantastic Four and eventually turned uh, a bit superhero antihero and was a member of the Avengers. So good on him. Of course, now we have Electro and Lizard who come to us more from the uh, in the movies. They come to us from the uh, Andrew Garfield realm. Uh, Electro, real name Maxwell Max Dillon, was created by Steve Goko and Stan Lee and introduced in Amazing Spider-Man number nine, 1964. Adversary of Spider-Man and also Daredevil, founding member of the Sinister Six, uh, was a line man for the Electric Company who turned to crime after being struck by lightning on the job becoming living lightning himself and of course lizard uh the lizard uh created by steve gitko and stan lee in 1963 it first appeared in amazing spider-man number six he started out um as another identity dr curtis kurt connors who was a geneticist working with reptiles to regrow limbs he was a friend and teacher to peter parker who eventually experimented on himself leading to his transformation as lizard member of the sinister six as well finally venom Venom has had many different incarnations in the comic books. He originally started as an alien symbiote who was originally bonded to Spider-Man during the Secret Wars, even though we didn't say that at the time. He was just the black costume. So he first appeared as the alien costume in Amazing Spider-Man number 252 in 1984. He was created and developed by a number of people, including Randley Schuler, Roger Stern, Tom DeFalco, Mike Zeck, Rika Lombardi, and Ron Fence. As Venom, he eventually bonded to Eddie Brock, and cameoed as Venom in Amazing Spider-Man number 299 and had his first full appearance in Amazing Spider-Man number 300 in 1988. So he's the young baby of the group here. He is also, of course, one of Spider-Man's three primary arch nemesis, member of the Sinister Six. And he has, in his time, the symbiote has been bonded to many different people and many different uh, spinoffs that I am not going to get into because we don't have time. (laughs) There is so much lore behind Venom. You would be astonished, folks. Uh, now, of course, in the movie universes, we're bringing over into the official MCU many of the same characters and villains, including the Spider-Mans in No Way Home for, of Tobey Maguire and Andrew Garfield. And, of course, we're also bringing back the wonderful Af- Alfred Molina as Dr. Ock. 
uh, Willem Dafoe as Green Goblin, Thomas Hayden Church as Sandman, Jamie Foxx as Electro, uh, Reese Ephens as the Lizard, and Tom Hardy as Venom in that small part at the end. Plus, in the movies, we finally get the with great power speech in No Way Home, but it comes from Aunt May's dying words. So, we have two topics under discussion tonight. First of all, let's look at the idea of Spider-Man Far From Home. And I want to start with the idea of what something that Mysterio brings to the character in the story that I thought was fairly well executed It's the idea of truth and perception and how the way that Mysterio as a villain and particularly depicted by um, Jake Gyllenhaal in the movie, uh, how that turns. Because when he's first introduced in the film, I was like, why are we making Mysterio a hero? This feels weird. And then I love that it was just a, a long grift, a con, because, of course, what Mysterio really does is he paints a narrative, a picture that people are willing to believe. This is because he as We as humans, rhetorically and all, tend to fall back on our priors. What we have always believed in is what we tend to default to. And Mysterio helps subvert that. He manipulates that, both in Peter and the world world to a large extent, and to attempt to gain power and dominance and the vacuum left by superheroes after Endgame. Also, apparently having a weird sort of um, revenge sense against all their injustices to Tony Stark. Um, Mysterio assures that is assured that his plans will work because he says, quote, people need to believe in something. And right now they don't believe in anything. This is a vacuum that he seeks to exploit. And so what I'm going to have us talk about in a minute here is how we think about how that plays out in the real world. Things like how social media has warped and shall we say, tripped up how we see ourselves and look at the world around us. And then in Spider-Man No Way Home, we are literally witness to the ultimate sort of test of, quote, with great power comes great responsibility. Peter is caught in a perfect kind of moral trap. His identity is exposed and it's hurting those he cares about as the fallout of what Mysterio set into motion at the end of Far From Home. Peter literally faces off with all of his poor choices, unfortunately exasperated by an irresponsible nay say negligent dr stephen strange but i'll save that disappointment with him for a little bit later see future episodes folks uh goblin in fact tells peter that his quote morality is your weakness and this is when he around the same time he kills aunt may all because peter believed in doing the right thing of following a sort of what we call a deontological path of doing what is right, because deontology is an ethical theory proposed by Immanuel Kant, offers the idea that we act in a way that determines, if we determine something is the right course of action, we value that more so and above any kind of consequences consequences are relegated to a lower set of statutes and we believe that we act in the nature of what is purely good or what we believe to be morally good with less regard for the ramifications and i feel like in no way home we get a real interesting treatment to that because peter treats each of the villains as autonomous beings who can change and deserve to be helped and this is the in this 
sort of universal to all villains, even begrudgingly to the Green Goblin. He's even willing to do things to help them because he believes that's the right thing. But unfortunately, the consequences of this action comes back to bite him because it takes a toll. It costs him something. Thankfully, Peter had his older and other selves to help him sort of work through this. And it's what sort of saves him from killing Goblin at the end and perhaps maybe even going over to being a villain but himself. So I want to talk about two questions. The first one, let's start here. How do we think the idea of what is truth and the perception of it play out in our modern world that today that are reflected through mysterious manipulation of Peter in Far From Home? Well, let me start by saying that Mysterio is actually my absolute favorite of the Sinister Six. And when I heard that he was going to show up in this movie, I was both very excited and very nervous because he's a lot of fun on paper. Oh, yeah, and, no, I agree. And but I wasn't sure how he was going to translate to film. But I was very excited to see how that was going to happen, because, like I said, he is my favorite because, like you said, he is just a guy. He doesn't have superpowers. He's basically just a glorified street magician. <laughs> I think I think one of his best depictions was in the uh, the 1990s Spider-Man cartoon. They did yes. a really good job with him in that cartoon. I remember. Yes, absolutely. That's actually one of my favorite depictions of him as well. Mm -hmm. But I. I just I love him because he's so good at misdirection. Yes. And for someone with an almost precognitive ability like Peter Parker, for him to get fooled by Mysterio every time with this misdirection, mm -hmm. like that, that really shows how good he is with this. He's and very fortunate that Peter shows... Tingle was on the fritz, right? Right, yeah. <laughs> but it also shows that deep down we all have this little sort of naivete that we kind of want to believe yes. the illusion. And that's the that's the other appealing thing about Mysterio is that his illusion is something like and that that this is where it pertains to the real world. We want to believe that illusion because in most cases, that illusion is what we want. Or yes, what we wish for. Yes, it's our tendency to fall back on our priors. We are more likely to believe something that better fits what we think is true regardless of whether it's true or not exactly this is, this is why people fall for misinformation so easily if you already but like let's use a political situation if you already are pr prone by the thing the news you consume to think that republicans are evil or democrats are evil and then some story someone comes along and tells you something that confirms it it's regard it doesn't matter that it's false or not you're going to believe it because it exactly. confirms your priors this is something exactly. that I think we we've always had this problem, but I think in an age with like, say, social media, and I think it's interesting the way that um, Quentin Beck in the movie per plays on this, too. He manipulates mm -hmm. Peter, but he's trying to pull off this mass manipulation um, and how effectively it's he seems to work it. Even when he's dying, he makes that video. Yeah, it's like one last thing. I'm going to ruin Peter Parker's life. You know, exactly with some, with, and, some, with my people doing some clever editing, you know, exactly. Yeah. And that's so ridiculously 
like just how things are today that like it just fits so well. Well, I mean, it's just like I think it's what I think is what makes superheroes and good superhero movies so effective is the way it does mirror things like this. It takes things and yes, it elevates them to some epic level sometimes, but they're dealing with things that are not too indifferent from what we're dealing with in the real world. They're taking that same thing and they're, they're using an analogous or allegorical story to talk about these same issues. I mean, I remember Grant Morrison wrote about it in super gods. He talks about how superheroes are in a lot of ways, a kind of like, mythic storytelling that we have that in some ways oftentimes is telling a story that's meant to convey some deeper message about our own human condition and that's one of the reasons why he thinks they're so relevant you know is that yes they do they tell these relevant they tell these stories that seem fantastical but if you look closely at them they're also telling you stories that are connective to you because what they're talking about even though it's in a slightly different context still has a lot of uh, connective relevance to the real world around us, the human condition that we all live in. Exactly. And it really kind of holds up a mirror to us too, because yes, at the end, when we see like the devastation where Peter sees, he pretty much gets outed by Mysterio mm-hmm. and everybody around him just like turns to him we're the people in the crowd like that's all yes, of us exactly Here we that are is all of us and, and as much as we would like to think that we would sympathize with peter we're thinking too highly of ourselves we're the people <laughs> in the crowd <laughs> i think it's easier for us to be those people in the crowd than we realize it is i think maybe and that's that's the real mirror yeah know? that is and it's it's so funny because i always think back to um one of my favorite books, The Neverending Story. Mm. And I always, I will never forget the very first time I read it and saw the movie, um, for those who haven't read the book, because it's this, it's the same in the movie as it is in the book. Oh, good. Um, I'm sure everybody's seen the movie, and if they haven't, go ruin your childhood now. Yes. <laughs> Traumatize <laughs> yourself. It doesn't matter how old you are, you will cry every tear you have in your body. Yes. Um that when he goes through the trials he goes through the first gate with the sphinxes and then he gets to the second gate and when uh the old man is describing the second gate to falcor he says that it's the magic mirror gate it shows man his true self and falcor casually says oh well that's not so bad and he's like no you don't understand he says kind men see they are actually cruel Brave men see that they are actually cowards. When confronted with their true selves, most men run away screaming. Yeah, that's and that always a good has one. always stuck with me. And I'm like, wow, yeah, that's terrifying. Like, if you think about it, like to to truly reflect on your mo- innermost self and see that, like, and that's what they're doing here with this is they're they're really just holding up a mirror and saying. This is what happens when you dox somebody. Yes. This and is think... what happens when you post a revenge video. Mm-hmm. This is what happens when you see somebody arguing and you pull out your phone and film it and put it on YouTube for likes. Yeah, or TikTok or whatever they do. Or Instagram. Or yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, this no, is, that's exactly this what this you. is. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, that's that is a really dark mirror. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that's good. I think it's a good point. Let's let's now move into No Way Home because now we get to see what happens in the aftermath of this. Um, because not only are we dealing, but not only are we dealing with the question I want to put us to here, what, what does it really mean as Peter learns the hard way to live with that line with great power comes great responsibility. He learns mm-hmm. that that lesson is hardcore in this. And it's a reflection of that sort of strange burden of like, what do you do when you do get kicked and knocked down? Because that's what happens in this film. Oh, I mean, gosh. Peter over gets and kicked in and, and it's and it's so funny because I think of it when I think of when the Tobey Maguire and the Andrew Garfield Spider-Man show up and I know it's great fan service, but mm-hmm. at the same time, they show up at that nadir of the film when Peter really has he's just lost Aunt May. Everything is in its worst possible configuration for him. And it's like having your future self come to you and say look it's like heavy those other spider-mans are tom holland's superheroes yeah that come to save him they're him the, yeah and in the same same uh key like they are looking at it as this is my chance to be what i wish someone had been for me at the time yeah no exactly so like they have the opportunity to be that person that sits down with them and tells them everything's going to be okay when when they really needed it. Yes. When they I, needed I think, it the most. And it's particularly poignant because, well, Willem Dafoe is, plays such a great sociopath. Um, He's amazing. I love him. <laughs> um, I mean, I guess of all the villains, I thought it was so interesting to see the whole mix in there. And it was really nice to see, before we dive into the great power thing, to see Toby Maguire's Spider-Man and Alfred Molina's Doc Ock get to yes. see each other again in a positive light, mm-hmm. you know, and all the, and, yeah, you know, and those, and those characters. And of course, like Flynn Marco still trying to like, he wants to be a good person still where we left him, you know, mm-hmm. and all those things. But it's just, I think it was so fascinating that it took all this time for us to finally put Tom Holland's Spider-Man into the path of what of that great power comes great responsibility because one of the things that I always think is fascinating is that when I I've gone back and I've read a digital copy of amazing fancy number 15 and they did a pretty good job of depicting this particularly in the Tobey Maguire uh, Spider-Man origin story but I don't know what it is maybe it's Steve Ditko's artwork but there was just something very poignant and very callous about that Spider-Man and how he just doesn't give a flip and yeah. what does it cost him? And just the, the way he drew the expressiveness on Peter's Parker's face really made you feel that, you know, he messed up. This is his fault. I mean, the idea behind with great power comes great responsibility is the realization that you had the power to do something and you messed it up and it cost you something dearly. Someone you loved paid the price. Yeah. For your irresponsibility. You know, if we inverse the quote, you know, it says with great power comes great responsibility. In a lot of ways, it's kind of a warning saying with great power, don't fall into the trap of misusing it, you know, or exactly. And so, you know, even though that's not exactly what Tom Holland's Spider-Man has done, 
he has allowed himself to um, be a little imbalanced and that he somehow thinks he can save everybody. And I think maybe that's borne out by what happened in Endgame and all these other experiences, but he somehow allows himself to ignore the warning signs and the possible consequences and try to do and try to live by that idea of taking the power and the responsibility and applying them, but not understanding that even if you adhere to it, you may still pay a toll. Exactly. Know? And that's where, where I was going to add, like this, this one actually, I feel adds to that quote with great power, with great power comes great responsibility and also great sacrifice. Yes. You're right. That that's that that's the under that's the underlying tone to some of it too. Yeah. Because it's the idea this is why the revealing of his identity put everything at such risk. You know, why mm-hmm. you know, why you keep that identity, why in the first Tobey Maguire movie he initially pushes Mary Jane away. Exactly. You know, because he doesn't rethink that he can handle what it would have to entail because in a lot of ways she thinks he's a jerk, but he thinks in his mind he is protecting her. But exactly. that's a sacrifice. He has to let that go because in order to walk the path he is going to have to walk as a superhero, he's not in a position where he he would be he would have to allow people like that to be threatened. I mean, let's be honest, Tony Stark came dangerously close in Iron Man 3 to falling right into the same problem here. Exactly. Uh, but yeah. also Tony Stark had a lot more money and wealth and security uh in some ways not giving out your home address to a terrorist organization is not a great move but you know i just think that there is such a it's such a powerful way that that message is reinvigorated in this film and it's kind of funny because if you look at it from that angle where like the whole tony stark angle a lot of these villains are literally here because tony stark screwed them over well and far from home that's incredibly true Um, I mean, everybody in that conspiracy with Quentin Beck was there because they felt they had been cheated by Tony Stark. Yeah, exactly. So and poor Peter is the one who's (laughs) suffering the fallout of this. (laughs) Well, that's because in a lot of ways they've done what happened in the Civil War um, in the comic books in the Civil War run. There is a sequence where Tony brings in Spider-Man to join his side against Captain America. It's not too similar. Mm -hmm. And he has Peter because the the hero's initiative he starts and the Registration Act requires that you give up your secret identity. And so he goes public with who he is. And it literally puts his whole, like, if he doesn't have Stark security, they're all in danger. Yep. You know, and eventually he does that. go against Stark because he realizes Stark's wrong, but it's like, geez, um, there's a reason why secret identity is a trope, buddy. Yeah. <laughs> you don't want to <laughs> give that up because that just gets way too costly. But, you know, even with Spider-Man, I think in a lot of ways, when you think about the villains and why he wants to save them is that he sees himself as responsible for them. You know, exactly. that's actually something that Tony Stark never did. It's mm-hmm. a it's a maturity on the part of Spider-Man. Tony never Tony saw the consequences of what he had done in terms of his military. I don't think he had his military and armament sales. I don't think he ever really gave too much thought that he might be causing the creation of villains in other ways. Spider-Man, right. though, is more on the ground level and has to see these things. And he looks at these other characters 
and his his empathy allows him to sort of see himself as responsible that he has a burden and it's fortunate for him that of course the other versions of him come along and make him understand that he doesn't have to do it alone exactly you know you have <laughs> allies you have friends and of course at the end he has to pay the ultimate price by having them all not remember him i know that was sad but <laughs> i hope he gets them back maybe he'll make a deal with mephisto Oh God, no! Don't say that. <laughs> well, he we did that. In the, that hey, he did that in the comic books. He yep, did that in the comic books. So yeah, that was a that was. A, let me just say this, folks. That was not a great storyline. Story no, it, it was weird. Not. It was, was weird. It was just weird. Uh, but I yeah, so like we, we should story. probably not. We should probably not wish that one to existence. No. <laughs> also, I wanted to bring up. You forgot one cameo. Okay. Matt Murdock. Oh, you're right, Daredevil. That was always yep. that was a fun one too. Yeah, I, I was so excited to see him. <laughs> can I say that I preferred his uh, his cameo in She-Hulk better? Yeah. Well, <laughs> I just thought it was funny because it's like him and She-Hulk are basically the only lawyers in the Marvel Universe. So <laughs> True. I, I also like, and I, I know that it might piss some people off, but I love that he was doing the walk of shame in his outfit. I was like, <laughs> good job, man. Good job. Take one for the uh -huh. team. Speaking of him, by the way, the actor who plays him, I actually saw apparently... Uh, did Halloween where with Tom Hiddleston and he went as Loki and Tom Hiddleston went as Daredevil. That's amazing. There are pictures out there. And I think he, Tom Hiddleston's wife went as uh, Captain Marvel. That's so, amazing. Yeah. Oh my gosh. And I it's funny because those. she, by the way, is the villain in the Marvels. That's, really? That's Tom Hiddleston's wife, the villain. I didn't know that. I'm yeah, that's his it. wife in the villain. So that's hilarious. Yeah, no, great. Okay, well, that was that was good. I think we, we've sort of rounded around here a little bit here, so that's good. So, folks, tell us what you think. Tell us your thoughts. Write us at notfunnyguys at dot off the reels at gmail.com. Hit us up on Instagram at notfunny under, I'm sorry, not underscore funny underscore guys underscore presents. It's my fault for writing the name that long. And at uh, Twitter, we'll never call it X at Not Funny Guys Pod, at Blue Sky at The Not Funny Guys. Until next time, folks, stay strange and keep asking questions. <laughs> <laughs>